0: okay we're ready to go guys (laughs) all right everybody so before we get into taking step one we're going to start first with the set aside prayer i'll just recite it to us you guys can follow along at home though
1: share this god please Mm -hmm. set aside
0: everything that i think i know about myself my unmanageability my spiritual path, and you, for an open mind and a new experience of myself, my unmanageability, my spiritual
1: path, and especially you. All right.
0: Thanks for taking the steps with us. My name is David. I'm an alcoholic, and with me are my co-chairs. Heather?
2: Heather, alcoholic.
0: David Alcoholic. This is not a fellowship group or a meeting. Instead, we are going to take uh, the 12 steps of recovery together over the next 12 weeks, following the precise, specific, clear-cut directions in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't have a Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous with you, go to aa.org. You can get a PDF version of it from there. Because this is not a fellowship group, anyone interested in the program recovery in this book is welcome to take the steps with us in this journey. Some other information and some ground rules, how we're going to be going through this. As I mentioned, we are recording the audio and we'll share it in the WhatsApp group, also in a podcast. Uh, If you're not in the WhatsApp group, please put your name and phone number, including the country code in the chat here, and we will add you after the meeting. Please commit to being here every week and being on camera. Everybody, please come on camera so we can engage. And you know, this is very much a step guide sponsoring experience. Uh, there is no attendee comment portion, but we will take questions. Uh, we're gonna read from the book and explain what we're reading for about 45 minutes, leaving some time at the end to answer any questions that aren't covered along the way. Um, so if you do have questions, please put them in the Zoom chat. If we don't answer them as we go along or at the meeting end, we will answer them either in the WhatsApp group or will one of us, me, David, you know, or Heather or one of our other fellows that's had a spiritual awakening will follow up with you one-on-one text or a call or or Zoom. We want to make sure all the questions get answered. If one of you is really struggling with a concept, we promise to make time for you outside these sessions to help. Okay, we've got to take the steps and we want to keep our pace up together. Um, there are some other people here who are taking the steps with us over these 12 weeks that we know have had a spiritual awakening. So we may ask some of them, you know, to help with, with outside, um, follow-ups as well. Um, just want to say this too, we're not the official big book experts or gurus. Um, we are going to share our experience and knowledge from our study of the book and from, you know, so many countless hours of of listening recordings of those who came before us, you know, who really helped us interpret the book. Uh we do have a dictionary person. Introduce yourself. Damn, Sam where are you in there? Okay. She's gonna help us with definitions along the way. Um, same thing. Words you don't understand, we may not define all of them. Please put them in the Zoom chat. Um and you know, we'll we'll answer them best we can as we go. Um Okay, so that's all the overview. So everybody gets it, we're taking the steps together. I'm gonna ask one more time, if you're not on camera, please come on camera. I know Laura's still walking to her home, but everybody else, please come on camera.
2: There's a couple of people uh, not yes, muted a,
0: still. Okay, yeah, and everybody please mute. And yes, okay. we have a 1938, 39 dictionary as well. Thank you, good, good uh, question, Liza. Okay, so we're gonna dive right in. Let's get down, we're gonna get into step one. Okay, so step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives become unmanageable. Okay? And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be hopping around. We're obviously not going word by word. It would take us a year and a half, you know, to read every bit. We do have another podcast we'll share with the group, too, where we do go word by word through the book. Um, so if you're interested in that, what we will share that. Um, but step one, we're going to be starting in the doctor's opinion. And we're going to be starting on Roman numeral 28 at the top. Where it says we believe, and just so you understand what we're going to be reading about today, what step one is all about. Uh, This chapter, the doctor's opinion, was written by a guy named William Duncan Silkworth. Okay, he was a doctor who, you know, in the early half of the 1900s, really 20s, 30s, 40s, worked at a hospital called Towns Hospital that was in New York, where he treated somewhere between 40 and 50 thousand alcoholics and drug addicts. Don't have the exact number, but tens of thousands of us. And so this is the doctor really credited with first understanding this illness that we suffer from. Okay. And so he wrote this uh, sort of preface forward uh, to set up the rest of the book, you know, and a little bit of trivia when he did this, when he wrote this doctor's opinion in the first printing, he was too afraid to put his name in the book because what he was talking about was absolute uh, medical heresy to suggest that alcoholism was an actual illness by the second printing, when we had more acceptance, he was more than happy to put his name in the book. So what we're gonna be talking about here in the first step is powerlessness, which comes in two parts of how we're ill. We're gonna be talking about the physical powerlessness we suffer from and the mental powerlessness that we suffer from. And then we're gonna talk about the third way in which we're sick in which we're ill. That's our unmanageability, or as we refer to it, our spiritual malady. So we're gonna dive in at the top of 28, Midstream here where the doctor is talking about the physical part of our illness. Okay, and we'll make sure to explain as a little bit old-fashioned language. We're going to explain this as we go. So the doctor starts with We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. So right there, I'm going to explain what this first sentence is. The action of alcohol on chronic alcoholics is the appearance of an allergy, the activation of an allergy. So, what he's saying is, when I put alcohol in my body, I have an allergic
1: reaction. So, so what we're talking. If we look up today what we thought the definition of a craving is, maybe in Webster's Dictionary in uh, 2023, here we would probably I hear things like "I have a craving." Whoever's not muted, please mute yourself. Um, we're talking about things that are sugary, salty, possibly fatty. He's not using this word craving in that, in that forum at all, not, not whatsoever. His definition is that we have this craving, that we break out in a craving, a phenomenon, something that cannot be explained. So we have an abnorm, this allergy he's talking about is an abnormal reaction to something. So it's talking about that. I, what it means is that I have this compulsiveness against my will to continue to drink.
0: So that the phenomenon of craving, so this allergic reaction of craving that my body breaks out in is limited to this class, the real alcoholic,
1: and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So never, right? We're talking about never happens in the average temperate drinker. How many of us grew up with guys, went to the pub, to the bar, did did all this drinking together, and then they got married. They got promoted. They had children and then they limited the amount that they drank or they stopped drinking whatsoever. And then they went home and I didn't do that. So I went to the bar and I had it with the intention to having two drinks. And then my buddy showed up at the bar and I thought I changed my mind. I thought I said, whoa, my buddy Joe just showed up. I'm just going to change my mind. and have a couple more drinks. That's not what happened to me. The doctors explain this very clearly here, that I broke out in an abnormal reaction to to this alcohol. I had this phenomenon of craving that I needed the second one more than I needed the first, the third more than the second, the fourth more than the third. I, I always thought I changed my mind. That's not what happened. I will always have this. But the average tempered drinker, this never, ever happened to them. So now the book goes
0: into making a bunch of
1: statements here. The
0: doctor makes statements about the real alcoholic. And this term, the real alcoholic, comes up a lot in this book. And in other parts that we're probably not going to cover over these 12 weeks, the book defines what a real alcoholic is. But in summary, a real alcoholic, according to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is someone who suffers from the physical, the mental, and the spiritual illnesses. Okay. So when the book makes statements as it's about to go on to, we like to personalize them, turn them into questions. Because I read statements about the alcoholic. I think the Dr. Silkworth is talking about you guys. But I have to self-diagnose. I need to turn this into questions. So as it relates to this physical allergic reaction, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Can I use alcohol safely in any form at all? Can I drink beer or wine better? Can I use mouthwash safely? How about vanilla extract? How about maraschino cherries? How about uh, drugs like benzodiazepines that affect my brain in the same way exactly that alcohol does? Can I use alcohol safely in any form?
1: For me, the answer is no. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Heather? We were talking about that a little bit yesterday.
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, I have tried this many times, you know, where I was like, you know what, alcohol is my problem but I can use weed. I can use weed like a lady. I can use benzos like a lady. And, you know, I I have for 15 years, I think I I went, I went to meetings. I I would be like, I can use this. And every single time without fail, I I could not, it was the more, 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 um, until I went through that whole cycle. Kim, can you
0: mute yourself, please? We're going to get the uh, upgraded version next week. We can have the God rights to mute everybody. (laughs) Once having formed the habit, so once I've started drinking and I break out in my allergic reaction, have I found I can't break it? And my experience, and guys, as I'm sure you've heard in meetings, don't look for the exceptions here. Of course. Sometimes when I went out drinking and I set out to have a couple, did I have a couple? Yes. Yes. But what happened when I set out to have a couple and I meant to have a couple and I ended up having a couple dozen because I broke out in the allergic reaction? Just like any allergy, sometimes the response is greater than others. But I ask the question myself, when I start drinking, can I guarantee the amount I'm going to drink? And for this alcoholic, the answer is no, I cannot guarantee that. Have I lost my self-confidence about my drinking? For me, the answer is yes, because when I break out in craving. I go to a work event where I need to behave myself, and what happens? I have that allergic reaction. I drink more than I wanted to and so I lose my self-confidence about my ability to control it. I have no control. How about this? Have I lost my reliance upon things human? What does that mean in simple talk? Did any human being ever ask me to stop drinking? Did my doctor, my kids, my parents, my spouse, the lawyer, the cops, the judge right? DCFS threatening me to take my kids away. I love that there's so many women here that have children. How many of you threatened to have the kids taken away or had the kids taken away and still drank again? And I always bring up, we always bring up the example of the mother and their children because there's no greater love than that. But how many times was the drink more important?
1: You know, I think back to uh, having a birthday party for my daughter. This is number 24 hours ago. Uh, 30, she, she's a year old. And I knew all these, all these relatives are coming over to my house. And I told myself, I'm only going to have a couple drinks. And so I'm trying to stay sober based on human reliance. And yet I had, I started to have a drink. I broke out in craving. I had this abnormal reaction to alcohol and I got intoxicated on my daughter's first birthday. And my wife and my in-laws were all looking at me like, it's like 11 o'clock in the morning, dude. I mean, you're wasted. And that is me trying to stay sober on my own power. And the question always has to be when we go to treatment centers, how are you doing on your own power? I have no power, no choice, no control, no mental defense. And I only know that by studying this book and understanding that I have diagnosed myself with this illness, this threefold illness. And I also understand that this is chronic and is progressive. So I understand this today, and this is the message that we're trying to get across as we work the steps because this first step is so vital. It is such a uh, foundation that I need to have that and if you're into building materials and you're, you're building a house, you have to have a strong foundation. Well, the first step in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll do it real briefly here, it, it covers over 60 pages just alone on the first step. So the question is this and only this, don't you think the first step has to be a very strong foundation? It has to be vitally strong.
2: You know, how about how many times we, I had planned on coming home at nine o'clock because I have to be at work the next day and I'm watching all these other people who, who get home at nine o'clock. So they have to be at, at work the next day and it's now four o'clock in the morning and I'm drunk and I need to get a couple hours of sleep. You know, I'm holding my breath while I'm working with, with, uh, with patients as a home health nurse. Cause I, I smell the alcohol on myself. Um, that's that lack of, of power, lack of choice.
0: The last question. It's always funny when David and I do this in treatment centers and we only get like a few hands going up. We say, are you, And problems piling up on me and becoming astonishingly difficult to solve? And I'm asking someone in treatment in the hospital, how are you, how are the problems piling up? Are you having difficulty? I'm like, Meh. I'm like, dude, you're in a treatment center. You're in a hospital. You're in a jail. Are you really doing okay? Right This delusion that I have this control persists. Right?
1: How am I doing? I'm my own power. So
0: has everybody got this? The physical part of the il- you know the physical illness, the physical part of the, the totality of the powerlessness, is really the part that happens at the end. It happens only when I put alcohol in my body do I have an allergic reaction, right? If I have a shellfish allergy, my throat doesn't close up if I don't eat any shrimp. So if I don't put any alcohol in my body, no worry, I'm not going to break out in craving. So the, the answer, the first answer that Dr. Silkward had is complete abstinence. Don't drink. Anybody show of hands, try to not drink <laughs> on your own power. Yeah, 100%. Of course, we all tried, right? We all stopped drinking 10,000 times. So if, if we all stopped drinking 10,000 times, everybody start drinking 10,000 times again?
1: 10,001. Yeah.
0: Why is that? Right, 10,001, yeah. The reason why we're going to jump down to the bottom of the page, we're going to talk about the second way in which we're ill, which is the mental part, right? This is our obsession. This is our mental powerlessness, okay? So the bottom of 29, Roman numeral 29, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're talking about here, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect. Okay, so th- this is true, right? My wife has a glass of wine while she's making dinner at night. She's not one of us. She can have a glass of wine because she likes the effect that it produces. And as a matter of fact, she'll put her take her glass of wine while she's making dinner. And I'm talking about not our kind of glass of wine either, by the way. It's like this much in a glass, right? <laughs> and she puts it down and she makes dinner and then we eat dinner and then she goes, Where's my glass of wine at? And I go, oh, I know exactly where it's at. It's right over there. <laughs> I know I've not missed a beat on that. But she doesn't, it, she just likes the effect that it produces. It affects, produces a thing in her that just gives her some calmness. She just likes the way it feels. You know, but if I think about it, it's like, so I drink for the effect that it produces. That's how I drank the very first time. It made me feel like a part of something because of this incompleteness that I had inside of me. So alcohol became my solution to one day when it wasn't any longer. And we'll get into all that here when we get into the malady.
2: My favorite example so everybody- of that is Uh I absolutely love sparkling water and I have never sat down and drank an entire case of sparkling water in one sitting, you know, in one night. Um I'll maybe have one two tops because it does not affect um it, it doesn't um produce that effect that the alcohol does, but I can tell you I have sat down and had a tremendous amount of alcohol in one night, you know?
0: The effect produced is why all human beings drink. But the next sentence is shifting back to us, right, as the real alcoholics. The sensation, which is the effect produced, is so elusive. So the effect produced eludes me. You guys know what it means for something to be elusive? I can't grasp it. I can't catch it. Right, I'm after it. And why does it elude me? Because I want the effect produced from a couple of drinks. Right? I say I want to take the edge off. I just want, you know, two cocktails to set me at ease. But What happens when I have the first cocktail? I break out in craving. So the effect produced I want eludes me. I don't have two. I have two dozen. And while they admit it is injurious, I think we all know what injurious means, harmful, hurtful. They cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. What this means, guys, is those 10,000 times I stopped drinking. And then because I'm feeling lousy, which, by the way, I feel lousy pretty much all the time. My brain kicks in and says, why don't you have a couple of drinks to take the edge off? My brain says, yeah, I'm going to have a couple. I cannot differentiate the true from the false. I forget what happened last week, last night, last month. Here's the story I always tell. That's a slight exaggeration, right? I, I have the end of a, uh, of a hard week at work, and so I'm going to go to happy hour with my uh, coworkers. And I call my girlfriend, and I say, I'm going to have a couple of drinks at happy hour. At 6 o'clock, I'll be home by 8. We'll, we'll have dinner and watch a movie. What happens when I go to happy hour and I have the first drink? I break out in craving. Do I have the two drinks and make it home by 8 o'clock? No, what happens is I get unbelievably drunk. I touch a woman in the bar inappropriately. Her boyfriend punches me in the face. The bouncers grab me and throw me out, opening the exit door with my skull. And I finally make it home six hours late at 2 in the morning where I'm locked out and I sleep the night off in the apartment hallway. And then the next day... You know, I get a, a phone call from Daniel and my buddy, he's like, Man, last night was a rough one. Huh? I'm like, Yeah, I think I better stay home and you know, be a good husband. He's like, eh, you know, let's go out for a little hair of the dog to bitch you. Two drinks. I got your back, I'll make sure you only have two, and we're not gonna call the dope dealer either. And what does my brain say? It doesn't say, Oh no. Remember what happened last night. It says, Daniel's right, I'm gonna have two drinks, it's going to be okay and then what happens when i go to the bar with daniel does he control my drinking no because human reliance fails me and i have the exact same injurious situation that happened the night before this is my complete and utter inability my powerlessness mentally over alcohol to differentiate the truth which is going to be bad from the false which is i'm going to be okay this time it's going to be different
1: and because i know i admitted to myself is injurious that there's going to be harm there's going to be injury here because the last time I drank like that, I ended up in front of the judge. And the judge told me, he flat out looked me right in the eye, and he said, next time you're in my courtroom, I will hand out the maximum sentence for the crime that you committed because it was related to alcohol and drugs. I'm going to start making plans because I know I'm going to jail. There's no doubt in my mind I'm going to get locked up here because I can't stop this thing. I can't. Once I start, I can't stop. And then it talks about that they cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from the fault. This is why Bill's using this in such a great, graceful way, that this is the obsession, that this obsession, without my consent, and without my permission, I pick up that drink again, like David just outlined for us, because Daniel said, let's just go have a couple of drinks, because this never happens in Daniel. Well, it does happen in this Daniel, but the fictitious Daniel that we were talking about, it says that... <laughs> that I'll be able to control the amount that I drink. That's a lie. I can't differentiate the true from the false. Without my consent, without my permission, I pick up that drink and I get completely obliterated again. Why? Because I have no power, no choice, no control, no mental defense.
0: And why do we persist in this behavior? It's because of the next sentence. To them, to me, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I did not understand I could live another way. I didn't even know that I needed to live another way. I saw people around me who didn't drink or controlled their drinking. I didn't know that was an option for me. This is the only way that I lived. And living is generous. This is how I existed as a human being. You know, i barely a human being at times.
1: And in my narcissistic... I'm sorry, David. No, go ahead. So, in my narcissistic thinking... I used to say to myself, I don't trust people that don't drink because <laughs> the alcoholic life was the only one that I knew. I only hung around with people that drank and drugged. And as my drinking progressed and it does and, and becomes more chronic, the people that are hanging around with, <laughs> there were different uh, levels of people that were hanging around with. Right. Because people would say things to me like David. You're drinking a little bit too much, dude, and I need to distance myself from you or you're drugging way too much. And then I'd have to lower my standards and start hanging around with other different people to the to the point where at the end of my drinking career, if that's what you want to call it. There was no one he left because nobody drank and drugged like me because I couldn't take a sober breath because I was without power. I was without choice. I was without control.
0: Sam, don't let us steamroll past too many definitions. And I know I'm yelling some out, too. I'm just used to this from the normal cadence, David, and I do. But start waving your hand, please. So when I put alcohol in my body, I have that allergic reaction, that craving, the physical. When I want to stop, I can't stop because of this mental obsession. But why does my mental obsession kick in? I said because I feel lousy all the time. Why do I feel lousy all the time? What does that look like? How is it characterized? is now beginning to talk about the unmanageability of my life, the mental and the physical and my powerlessness over alcohol. My fundamental problem, my real problem, if you're newer and you haven't worked the steps for the sponsor, you haven't really studied this book, sneak preview. Sneak preview. My real problem is the unmanageability of my life, my spiritual malady. And the doctor just quickly starts to describe it. We're going to give a be- better definition in a few minutes. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. Guys know what these words mean? Restlessness, right? Can't sit still. I'm always sort of agitated. Irritable, always on the verge. And Sam, yeah, if you got any of these, please jump in and correct or enhance what I'm saying. Irritable, always on the verge of anger. And discontented, not happy. To be content, right, is to be calm, to be stable. I'm discontented. I'm without contentment. I'm restless, irritable, and discontented. Unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort. Not ease and comfort, but just the sense of it, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with (laughs) impunity. David and I talk about this a lot, too. The ease and comfort, that sense of it, I don't, I don't even get when I take that first drink. I get it when I twist in the top off the bottle or when the first drink is passed to me along the bar or when I go and pick up a bag for the dealer and I get home and I turn off the phone and I lock the door. Because as soon as I get started, there ain't much ease and comfort. I get maybe five minutes of that before it's all downhill, and it's not real ease and comfort anyway. Non-alcoholics have a drink and they get real ease and comfort. They get the relaxation of the central nervous system from the alcohol. I only get the fleeting sense of it because I'm going to break out in craving and stuff's going to go sideways in a hurry.
1: So Lisa did a nice job. She put in in the uh, chat there some delusion that we're talking about on page 30. And I won't go into the content of what it means on page 30, but the delusion is internal. Illusion is external. Like if I'm walking through a parking lot somewhere, and it's in the middle of the summer, and the asphalt, and my car's parked at the other end of the asphalt parking lot, and I look over there, and it looks like there's a puddle around my car, right? And as I get a little closer, that puddle evaporates, goes away in my mind, because that's an illusion, like a magic trick. But a delusion is internal. It is something that I believe it's a lie, so delusionally, I think I could pick up a couple of drinks. I can, the, the ease and comfort that comes at once, the delusion that I can drink like other people, the, de- de- that I can't differentiate the truth from the false, I pick it up on the delusion. And I have to understand that I'm not like other people, I have this threefold illness. You know, as I, as I use this example many times, and I've heard it from other people, is like if you take a cucumber and you put it in brine, and you take that cucumber and you put it on the windowsill after it's been in brine for 30 minutes, it becomes a pickle. So if I take it off the shelf, when does that pickle become a cucumber again? Well, the answer is never, because once a pickle, always a pickle. Once an alcoholic, I will always be an alcoholic.
0: And the last part of this drinks, which you see others taking with impunity, (laughs) impunity means without punishment. Again, those friends, those coworkers, we all went to happy hour at six and planned to leave by eight. And I didn't leave by eight because it broke out in craving. They had their drinks and they went home at eight o'clock and had the dinner and a movie with their spouses and, and partners. What does this look like for us in this cycle of sickness? After they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do because of my mental illness, my obsession, my compulsion. And the phenomenon of craving develops because I have a physical allergic reaction. This is biology. And by the way, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go through these weeks, no cure for the physical, guys. No cure. I'm very careful with anything doctors prescribe to me. I have a knee surgery. I have a back surgery. I've had both those things. I say, doctor, please give me tramadol. Do not give me Norcos. I am not to be trusted because my body does not react well any intoxicant. The phenomenal craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, a binge, a drunkenness, a run. Emerging remorseful with the firm resolution not to drink again. Anybody ever make the firm resolution not to drink again? Sunday evening, come to talking to yourself in the third person looking in the mirror, right? David, you're stronger than this. David, you're smarter than this. David, you're screwing up your life. Coaching myself. Firm resolution not to drink again at seven o'clock on a Sunday night. And then at seven thirty, my buddy calls and says, dude, where are you? It's Sunday night football. The bears are playing. Come to the bar around the corner. 30 minutes later, I'm drinking again.
1: My firm resolution smashed. And they, and they even it's related a, to that on, on the other page where they talk about that frothy emotional appeal that other people gave us like, please, please, please don't do this again, David. And I had that same thing with me as David just pointed out in the mirror, anyone done this? I mean, you get up in the morning, you don't want to look at yourself while you're brushing your teeth because you're so disgusted with what you've done the night before because this is repeated behavior over and over and over again. And that, but I'm having this conversation with myself in the car. I'm never going to do this again. I'm in front of the mirror. I'm never going to do this again. This frothy emotional appeal because you love my, you love your children. You love your job. You want your house. You don't want to lose your wife. I have no power, no choice, no control. And I don't know this. And I still continue to pick up a drink thinking it's going to be different this time. That is a lie. It'll never, I'll never be able to drink like a normal person because that, this craving that I have once I break out and this obsession that takes over my mind without my consent and without my permission is driven by what we're going to get to here in a minute is this malady in here. That's why it's so important to understand the whole first step that the drink problem that says that we're powerless over alcohol. That's a problem. But that's not the problem.
0: This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of recovery. But what is that statement saying? It says, if I don't have this, there's not going to be much hope, which conversely means if I do have a psychic change, there's a lot of hope. But before we get into hope, we better talk about the problem just a little bit more because we just characterize that spiritual malady, the, the unmanageability, really our fundamental problem, just a little bit, restless, irritable, and discontent, you know, a few words. Now we're going to jump into the, the regular numbers portion, page 52. We're going to go to page 52. We're going to read a paragraph called the bedevilments. Hmm. Okay. This is not the only description of what it's like to have an unmanageable life or to be spiritually ill, but it's a pretty good one. Okay. So the second paragraph it starts with we had to ask ourselves, but we're going to start with the second um, sentence. Heather, I'll just read it through and then I'll let you you know convert them into questions and, and editorialize. Okay. We were have, so think about this relate. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional majors. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people.
2: All right, guys. So we're gonna turn these into questions. When this says um, "we," I think that they're talking about you, and I, I need to turn that into me. So, was I having trouble with personal relationships? Absolutely. Every relationship in my life was was absolutely um, awful. Uh, you couldn't depend on me. Um, people had a problem with me. I had a problem with you. Everything you said um, was definitely a problem. Could I control my emotional natures? Uh, absolutely not. i I was I was up, I was down. I was very unpredictable. Um, just felt all over the place. You, you could see it all over me. Was I prey to misery and depression for for me, I, I think this is one of the biggest symptoms that I had. i was I was waking up every day wishing I was dead. Um, I was going to bed at night, like that was the the best time of my day. We were just talking about that this morning. I, I love my mornings now i'm I'm so excited to wake up. Um, you know, I got to the point where I was suicidal, homicidal. Uh, I, I knew that i I couldn't um I couldn't take my own life because I couldn't do that to my children. And I had this thought one day that, you know what? I'll just take those kids with me. that That's how far down this got. you know, um, I couldn't make a living. I couldn't make an honest living. There was times in my addiction that I couldn't make a living. I couldn't hold a job. Um, when I did hold a job, I, I was getting written up all the time. I, I I'm a nurse. I, I wasn't um I was doing the very bare minimum to get my paycheck. I, I was I was um really not caring for these people in the way they needed, um, not worried about their health and their well being. Um, I had a feeling of uselessness. I, I felt worthless. I felt, I felt so useless. Um, I I couldn't, uh, I was full of fear. I I had those opposite fears, right? I I was fearful of going to work because, um, I was just fearful of the opposites with going to work with not going to work, right? If, if I don't go to work, I'm, I'm not going to get that paycheck. If I go to work, I got to face the day I've got to, I've got to face myself. Um, I want to be in a relationship, but you know what? I, I don't want that commitment. Um, I, I I don't want to be in a relationship because of the commitment, but I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. Right? Um, am I unhappy? I, I was chronically unhappy. Um, I think, um, you know, that's part of that that depression and misery. I tried every treatment program, IOP, residential. Um, I tried the psych stuff. I I nothing worked. I, I couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. I would help you all right, but I had to get something out of it. You know, I was keeping a ledger. Um, I wanted you to do uh something something for me in return. I, I would remember that. Um and uh my favorite definition of this the bedevilments to be controlled as if by devils. Right. It was like, um, it was like the devil had me on these strings and I was the puppet and, and every bit of my life was just controlled by it. You know, I would walk into the house at night and, and all the sound would just drive me crazy. I would put on these noise canceling headphones. You said anything to me and I would, I would just snap at you. Um, all I wanted to do was to go to my room and be alone I just lived in this misery. Um like I said the first thought was I I I don't want to do today. This was this was every day and my story is you know I went to these meetings for 15 years and I didn't know that this was my problem. So I kept I kept going back out trying something different, not alcohol maybe and it would be the same it would be the same thing. So what I wanted to do real quick is if David you could um share that cycle and, and just okay. do a quick recap of what we just um, went over. So we just, we just tackled that spiritual malady, that, that restless, that irritable and discontent, you know, every part of, of uh, how I feel. So um, that fuels the mental obsession that, that difficulty to differentiate the truth from the false, that insane thought that this time will be different, you know, that I'm just going to have three um, that maybe I just won't drink with that person. This is a new person. I'll, I'll drink with that person, you know, that I'm going to be home at nine o'clock that I'm going to kill myself anyway. So what does it matter? Um, and, and for me, this is how I, it, this is how it talked to me. You know what, Heather, alcohol, that's my problem. I think I can use weed like a lady. I think I can use benzos like a lady. I think I can use stimulants like a lady. Um, and, um, Uh, like I said, I did this for 15 years and every single time I cannot recover. If I am putting a mood altering substance in my body, these steps are impossible. If I am, if I am using benzos, weed, anything else. So it'll tell me whatever lie it needs me to believe to get me to take that first drink. Um, and, and so that takes over. And now I take that first drink, and it gives me that sense of ease and comfort, which really doesn't last but a minute. Um, and, and that kicks in that physical allergy, the phenomenon of craving. I want more, more, more. Um, and, and that brings me to that spree any length of time um, when I was drinking or using, whether it's a day, week, month, years, um, and, and, and something stops that. And I emerge remorseful. You know, that's where I'm saying I'm I'm such a piece of garbage. I'm the biggest loser. Um, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, and that brings me to the firm resolution that never again am I gonna drink. You know, I meant that with the depth of who I was. Um, I could have passed a lie detector test that I was never gonna drink again. I, I absolutely meant it. And and again, then I, I go into that spiritual malady restless, irritable, and discontent. And it continues and continues until um, and, until we get that uh, uh, spiritual
1: uh, awakening. Oh my gosh.
2: The spiritual <laughs> awakening, which is what we're going to go into now.
0: So, any women want to talk about the spiritual malady, the bedevilments, the unmanageability? please reach out to Heather. She will talk your ear off for hours about this. I always say, if you want to become a student of the book, find that paragraph that as you're reading, you have your aha moment and key in on that. And and you will be amazed how it will draw you into the entire book. So summarizing our illness, because we got, I'm looking at the clock and we want to get into a glimpse of getting better, right? It told us unless we have a psychic change, Dr. Silker said, this is very little hope of our recovery. Why do we need a psychic change? Because we're spiritually ill. Everything inside of me is all twisted. So step one's our problem, guys. It's our problem statement. I'm powerless physically and mentally, and I have an unmanageable life. I'm spiritually ill. Step 12, without getting ahead of ourselves, is the solution statement that I'm going to have a spiritual awakening as the singular result of these steps. So I got to get from 1 to 12 by working everything in between. But what does the spiritual awakening look like? Everybody wants to know, right? Because we don't want to be patient.
1: Let's go to page
0: 27.
1: And as we go to page 27, real briefly about the bedoublems, just real briefly here. It is the second half of our first step. My life is unmanageable. It is untreated alcoholism. It is the spiritual malady that they're describing here. And guess what they have all in common, all these bedoublems. All of them are internal. None of them are external. It has nothing to do with whether my my mom and dad hug me enough, what gender I am, what race I am, what any of that stuff. It has. This is all internal. So let's go to page twenty seven, like David said, and find out what our solution is.
0: So this is the story of another doctor. This isn't Doctor Silkworth. This is Doctor Carl Jung, who's a very famous psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. Again, in the early part of of the twentieth century. He was a disciple of Sigmund Freud. So If you haven't heard of Jung, you've probably heard of Freud, sort of the godfather of psychoanalysis. Right? And Jung was one of Freud's two big disciples, Jung and Adler. While, while Freud and Adler believed all of our problems could be solved through enough therapy and pharmacology, Jung believed that some problems could be solved with a spiritual awakening. And so this is a story, again, we're jumping in the middle of Jung working with a guy named Roland Hazard, very wealthy American businessman who could not stop drinking. And he was wealthy enough, he was able to move to Switzerland and stay in the care of Dr. Jung for an entire year. And after that year, he said, I think I'm cured. And Dr. Jung said, I think you are too. You understand the inner workings of your mind. God bless, go home and be a good man. And days after Roland left, after studying with the most, arguably the most brilliant psychiatrist on the planet, days after he left, he drank. And Roland went back to the doctor and said, doctor, why can I not stop drinking? And the second paragraph, the doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed in him with a clang. Guys, imagine if you had cancer. And you went to the best hospital in London or in Chicago or wherever you are. And the chief of oncology said, I've never seen anybody with cancer like yours get better. Same death sentence, guys. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Now, remember, this is pre-AA, pre-12-step recovery. So yes, replied the doctor, there is exceptions. Because again, pre-12-step recovery it was only exceptions. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Vital meaning life giving, life sustaining. Spiritual meaning beyond the body and the mind, beyond the corpus, beyond the, I don't know, Memphis, my Latin's failing me. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. <whistles> phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge, not mild, Huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Here's the payoff, guys. This is what it looks like. This is what happened to me and so many people I know here today. Ideas, the stuff in my head. Emotions, the stuff in my heart. And attitudes, what's rotting in my gut. Which were once the guiding force of the lives of these men, how I was being propelled through life. These things are suddenly cast to one side. Don't get hung up on suddenly either, because for most of it, it's gradual. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Think about what he said. My spiritual awakening, the result of it, from taking the steps and helping other people and being a part of like we are today, my experience is going to be the bad thoughts, the yucky feelings, and those prejudices in my gut. Head, heart, and gut going to be thrown out. And God, as I understand was going to replace them with healthier ones. And then what happens in the, in the little circle, the, the cycle Heather showed us? I am not spiritually ill because I got new head, heart, and gut. of a mental obsession. My delusion doesn't get activated because it doesn't occur to me to pick up a drink because I'm feeling better. And because I don't pick up the first drink, I cannot break out in the physical craving. I must have this experience. If I'm a real alcoholic, which, guys, I am.
1: So as David pointed out there, as we read this, he said, Dr. Jung called this a vital spiritual experience. Dr. Silkworth called it an entire psychic change. They both mean the same thing. This must happen for me, as David just pointed out. And, oh, and by the way, no human power can produce this. No human power can produce this. And again, this must happen for me because I need my ideas, which are my thinking. I need my emotions, which are my feelings. And I need my attitude, which are my beliefs, to all change. But again, no meaning is going to be able to produce that, maybe for a short period of time. Maybe a good sponsor for a short period of time. But this is a lifelong project here. So when when these things start changing inside of me, my feelings aren't running me around any longer. They're just God-given feelings. This is what an entire psychic change looks like. This is what a spiritual awakening looks like. And again, this must happen for me.
2: And let's look back at vital spiritual experience, what that word vital means, you know, think of the other things that are vital, my brain, my heart, my lungs, my liver, without those, I cannot live. That is what this is saying, right? Our our book is going to go on to tell us how, how fatal this illness is. And without the spiritual experience, we cannot live any more than we can live without our brain, our heart, our lungs.
0: I'm going to read this, this last part and then we have got one more page we want to cover and we just want to leave a little bit of time at the end too. The doctor goes on to say after he describes how Roland needs this vital spiritual experience. He says, "In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional re- uh, rearrangement within you. But remember, human reliance failed, fails the real alcoholic. With many individuals the methods which I employed are successful but I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. What's that description? Roland was a real alcoholic that suffered physically, mentally, and spiritually. How do you think it was that Dr. Jung was able to help some other drinkers? Because the book talks about the heavy drinker, the hard drinker. They look like us. They ain't like us because they don't suffer in all three ways. I would say my buddies from college, we all drank a lot. In college and in our 20s, we all did a lot of other drugs, and we were crazy. And then guess what happened as we got older? I kept going. They stopped and moderated. They got married. They had kids. They got promotions at work. Circumstances allowed them to modify their behavior, not this guy. So Dr. Young was able to help heavy drinkers, but not a real alcoholic. And he says, Roland, go back to the U.S. Go find these Oxford Group people. I think they're onto something. And it's a story for another day. So, guys, this is what it looks like. And if you agree with the bedevilments that you're suffering from those, and they're all rooted, like David said, all those bedevilments are inside me. All those things are living in my head, my heart, and my gut. Nothing external is going to make me feel better. Anybody get into that great new relationship? Anybody start making more money? Got the new job? Got the new car? Got the new home? Did that make you feel better? Did that make you feel less unmanageable, less spiritually sick? No, of course not. This is why we see celebrities with all the fame and fortune and money committing suicide and overdosing. Because our problems are inside. Doesn't it sound great to have a spiritual awakening to get a right head, heart, and gut? It does to me. Why do so many have trouble with this? This question is asked. We're going to back up to page 25. So just jump back in your book, flip a page, look at the bottom. This is the proposition. This is really the bottom line here, guys. Bottom paragraph in 25, if you're as seriously alcoholic as we were, that mean to be seriously alcoholic, got those three illnesses, physical, mental, and spiritual, we believe there's no middle-of-the-road solution. You guys know what a middle-of-the-road solution is? Right, I'm not taking a hard path or decision. What's a middle-of-the-road decision? I go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, okay. Uh, Put the plug in the jug. Don't drink and go to meetings. Guys, if I could not drink and go to meetings, why the hell would I be sitting here? I would not. These middle of the road solutions is the gray area that I loved to live in. Isn't there an easier, softer way? Not if you're a real alcoholic, not if you're seriously alcoholic like I am. We were in a position. Was I in a position where life was becoming impossible? Had I passed into the region from which there's no return through human aid? Again, that's that reliance on other humans failing me kids, parents, spouses, partners, doctors, lawyers, judges, cops. So if this is my case, there's two alternatives. I don't really think these are options. It's more like these are the two ways it's going to go. One, was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. That's this, guys. Blinders on. Right? Going to the bitter end, which, by the way, is what I was doing before I got in here. What's the other alternative? To accept spiritual help. And every time I read this, especially to a group or in treatment group, something like that, it is so ridiculous, Right? God willing, in 17 days, I'm going to have 19 years of continuous sobriety. <laughs> so this should seem ridiculous. Thank you. If it was not for applause, I'm just trying to make a point here that it's ridiculous. Of course, I will take the spiritual help. What lunatic wouldn't? But when I came in on day one, on day five, on day 10, I just didn't know, guys. I just didn't know. I was very comfortable in the devil I knew. You know, Heather always talks about the predictability of pain. From my drinking and drug use, I knew how it was going to make me feel, even though it made me feel awful. What was scarier was what? I'm going to go to meetings and hang out with all you crazy people. You laugh at the wrong times and you get these goofy expressions and sayings. And what? I got to get read this antiquated book and I'm never going to drink again, not even during Bears games. And what? A sponsor? I'm a grown man. I'm going to call some other guy and, and check in with him. I just don't know. But God silenced me enough, and I always say this on day thirty-eight. It's when I got a sponsor, and don't wait day thirty-eight, guys. Do it sooner, because right? that's when I was like, "Please give me the spiritual help, Mike, my first sponsor.
1: Your help." You know, so, I, I we,
2: waited. 15, go, Heather. I waited fifteen years doing that middle path. You know, I would show up to meetings. I put my all into to yoga. I put my all into to the the health stuff. I, I put my all into exercise. Nothing worked. And it, it was not until I, I found out about those bedevilments and that the spiritual um experience and um and then I felt that that freedom. 15 years of suffering doing that middle middle road solution.
1: So it says blotting out the consciousness of our tolerable situation the best that we can. Anyone relate to that? How about the alcoholic life this is the only one that I know? Isn't that the same kind of statement? It's just written a different way. So, the, I only, the devil that I know is that I'm going to beat this game someday or F it, like Heather brought up. I'm going to die and I'm going to take everybody else with me. You know, the one thing about suffering is I don't suffer alone. I will take you with me. I promise you that. I can't do any of this stuff alone. Or if you take that statement and you take this statement to a healthy person, say the PTA where your children go to school, and you ask them, what would you like to have? Would you want to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of a tolerable situation the best you can? or accept spiritual help, they look at you like, dude, it's spiritual help all day. Why is that such a tough decision for the alcoholic? Because I think somehow, someday I can beat this game. And as David pointed out there too, when I was locked up into a psych ward, my last time I took a drink back in 1999, I was in that psych ward, and I had that moment of clarity where, the, where God froze the liar in me just long enough to see the truth that this is my life and it was never getting any better than this. And I went to a pay phone and I asked someone in Alcoholics Anonymous that I picked up the phone and called and said, will you help me? And he said, I will help you if you let me. And from that point on, I haven't had to take a drink, but I didn't go to meetings and say, I woke up this morning and I chose not to drink. Dude, if you can choose not to drink, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't have a choice. I have no power, no control. But let me say one thing too. I can't leave you without with this. Because I've been sober for a few 24 hours. God has gotten between me and a drink, and God has gotten me between me and my unmanageability. I have mm. to understand that that I have connected to this power. And what how do I get to that power? Working all 12 steps with the ability that God will give me.
0: So let's we're going to re-summarize here. We got Five minutes so we can. I don't think I missed any questions. If I did, I'll give everybody a chance to just verbalize them, vocalize them. Here's what we studied today. And we'll give some homework because I know a bunch of people texted me and said, It's going to be homework. So we'll give a little homework. But this is not not an action step. This is an understanding, a self diagnosis step, really, guys. I cannot tell anybody here they're a real alcoholic, but I can diagnose myself. We are ill, we are ill, not only the doctor's opinion, not only the opinion of Alcoholics Anonymous, but in the 1950s, I think it was 1956, I'm sure someone can commit me, the American, or correct me, the American Medical Association and many other bodies around the world recognized alcoholism as an illness, and it's changed, it's alcohol something disorder, now whatever, I don't keep up with it, my definition comes out of here, but I'm sick. I'm physically powerless over alcohol. I break out in craving. I'm mentally powerless over alcohol. Every time I put it down, I pick it back up. And I always pick it back up because I'm so spiritually ill. My life is unmanageable. But if I can have a psychic change, a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening, they're, they're more or less euphemisms of the same thing. There's subtle differences. We can talk about that offline if you like. But what it really means, guys, is if. I get to God if I work these steps. I take these steps. I like to say take these steps instead of working these steps because taking the steps is really what prepares me to do the real work, which is to carry the message to other people. But if I can get to God by taking the steps, the stuff in my head, my heart, and my gut that's all black and twisted and evil I'm going to get better. And I'm going to be reborn. So here's the homework. Anybody wants to do homework? back between now and saturday next saturday read the doctor's opinion read yeah. bill's story right read uh, there is a solution read more about alcoholism and read appendix two's spiritual experience and when we reconvene next week we're going to be into the chapter we agnostics we're going to power into step two where we're going to get some more of that hope we're going to find out how easy it is to start to get better, to start to have that spiritual awakening. God knows we all like easy. Any questions on what we covered today? And, and only what we covered today. Let's not jump ahead, please.
1: Unmute yourself if you uh, have a question, please.
0: Yeah, it's okay to unmute at this point. No questions. Everybody's mastered the first step. Oh, Penny said, What did I say to read for next week? Doctor's opinion. Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism. And David didn't say the whole thing he usually says, right, which is about how the book is laid out at the beginning. So, um, David, you want yeah, so to just describe the chunks of the 43?
1: Yeah, so Doctor's Opinion, and the first 23 pages of this book is dedicated to the mind. Pages 23 through 43, the dedicated body. to the to the body. I'm sorry, the body. 23 through 43 is dedicated to the mind. That's what we're talking about here. And then as we talked about today, we talked about the bedevilments on page 52. So again, about 60 collective pages out of 103 where all the directions are in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps are dedicated to the first step. And the one thing that Lisa brought this up when we talked about the word delusion, we also talk about the, on page 30, and more about alcoholism. That's one of the assignments that David talked about having today, it says, <clears throat> in the second full paragraph, it says we learned that, have we, that we had to fully concede our innermost selves that we were real alcoholics. So if we've studied up to this point, then maybe we can make that diagnosis that, yeah, I got to concede to my innermost self. That's a stronger statement to me than just looking at the steps on the wall where that, those are the work that I did for a long time off the wall. I got to have no results from that, that I'm powers over alcohol. But look at page 30 here, and I have to concede to my innermost self that I'm a real alcoholic. That, to me, is the first step. Bill clearly puts that in there, and then they talk about the delusion.
2: <clears throat> Maybe a little bit more homework would be to go back to Roman numeral 28, go through those two paragraphs, and identify yourself with those things. Ask yourself those questions. You know, do I relate to this? Can, can I identify with all these things? Go back to page 52. Can I identify with all of these things?
1: So, All right, we're going to wrap up
0: on... Oh, go ahead, David.
1: Yep. Okay, so j- again, just to review, so I'm clear if you want to write this down. So when we talk about the body, doctor's opinion, and then up to page 23. Then of the mind, 23 to 43. And then of the will, the spiritual malady, pages 44, 45, 52 in 60 through 62 okay
0: and you know what we'll post this in the whatsapp group too we'll we'll do that so if you didn't give us your name country code and and phone number please put that in the chat before you split all right we we should wrap up we should kill the recording but david heather and sam stick around with me for a couple minutes so we can